What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here for episode 165 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Uh, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. Check us out week after week. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. Before I dive down that rabbit hole, I want to say hello to Schwan Humes. How are you doing there, sir? Thank you for joining me again tonight. Oh, my pleasure. I'm doing fine. Just staying busy as always. Got to find something to do. At all moments. That's true, man. That's true. We're almost the country's almost getting opened back up, so you know we gotta we gotta figure out what that new normal looks like and find our way back to it. Um, so yes, let's go ahead and talk about today's show. But before we do that, I want to say thank you again for listening to this content. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel here. As always, you can go over to our flagship at MMARatings.net to check check out all the content that we post there. Um, we are also on all podcast platforms such as Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify as well. Our YouTube channel is at MMA Ratings, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings Net in both spaces. Um, we have a couple of different topics to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the fights this weekend. You will see on ESPN Nine. We're going to talk about that high level. Um, we're going to have a conversation about the com- uh, about the continuation of thoughts around who is the MMA GOAT and also do some listener questions today as well. So first things first, let's jump into this UFC on ESPN 9. Let's start there. And we have a very interesting main event where Tyron Woodley is fighting uh, Gilbert Burns at 170 pounds. This is, Gil- this is Gilbert Burns' biggest fight in his career to date. And for Woodley, I think this is a very dangerous contest for him, especially as conversation came out that they're going to be using the smaller cage for this weekend's fight. It That makes the fight more dangerous for both individuals, and we'll, we'll talk about that for sure. But, um, Shawan, I just want to get started with you. From a high level, what do you see when you look at a welterweight matchup between Woodley and Burns? Uh, you would think it's a, a fight that favors Woodley just because Burns isn't a great wrestler. And Burns is striking, he's gotten better, but he's not particularly dynamic. He's not super technical or defensively slick. So you would say basically this should be a Tyrone Wood- Woodley special where he keeps a low low pace, kind of draws got, draws Burns in and counters him big with maybe a leg kick, the right hand, defends some takedowns, maybe gets one or two takedowns and ekes out a win. In theory, that that's basically how this fight should should go because Burns Burns a good athlete. I don't know that even now he's still a better athlete than Tyron Woodley, but from what I've seen of Burns, he's not very hard to hit. He doesn't knock guys out with every shot. He's not great at pushing a pace and maintaining it himself, and he's just not one of those high-level strikers. His best asset is the fact that he's above, He's probably one of the better athletes as far as the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys, and he's such a good technician that once he gets people to the ground, he controls guys on the feet because they're scared to go into the ground with him because he's a decent enough wrestler and he's so dangerous on the ground. I don't know that he, he's a decent enough wrestler to get Woodley to the ground consistently or even, or even once, to be quite honest. So in that in that regard, it seems like the fight should be Woodley's to lose. I just don't think Woodley's been as sharp as he's been. And I think people have kind of figured him out a little bit. And until Woodley shows more, it's hard to really it's hard to really feel safe betting on him now. It's kind of everybody's figured out what Woodley's thing is. He's going to back up. He's going to throw maybe five to ten strikes around, trying to land some big power, explode, maybe get a takedown, land some quick shots, and just try to eke out decisions by controlling where the fight takes place 
and how fast the fight, the pace of the fight is. Um, beating Woodley, beating yeah, beating Woodley isn't real terribly difficult to be quite honest. I mean, it's really simple from a technical basis. It's just you have to be willing to walk that tightrope. Um, but this is an important fight for Burns, and I, I think if there's ever going to be a chance where he's a fight where he's going to take chances, this is going to have to be it. He's going to have to take chances to beat Tyron Woodley. If he tries to play it safe, I don't see any way he beats him. I don't see any way he wins this without trying to force the issue or taking some kind of chance to get Woodley to show his hand and then punish him for it. The only way I could see this fight becoming a ground battle where Gilbert Burns has a massive advantage is if is is the, the the use of the cage. So let's talk about the fact that they are using the smaller cage for this fight here. I think it plays into both guys game plans a little bit more because if Woodley hurts Burns, he doesn't have as much room to scramble and, and try to escape. But for Burns, if he can get Woodley up against the cage, which fighters have been able to, I mean everyone everyone that's fought him so far have been able to do that. The taking him down is the hard part, but if Burns can get him up against the cage, that opens up an opportunity for him to be able to use his grappling in a better sense. So, Schwan, just what do you think, or how do you think this smaller cage will come into play on Saturday? Well, the smaller cage could be a factor because, because like you said, it's going to be easy to get Woodley to the cage, but at the same instance, if you get hurt against Woodley, you're not going to have anywhere to go. Like, if you're trying to be evasive or back away, or cutting your footwork has to be really tight defensively in a smaller cage. If a guy lands on you or starts pressuring you, it's very hard to get away from him. Woodley doesn't try to get away from pressure. He basically backs up to the fence, waits for you to come in, and then he blasts you. Blasts for a takedown, blasts for a leg kick, blasts for a big right hand, whatever. He, you, he, come, he gets you to come right in because guys in, in MMA don't take angles. They see you back against the cage. They try to walk right in on you, and then he basically counters. And that's what he's done. That's what he did against Law. That's what he does against everybody. He baits you in. And lands that right hand. He's betting that his ability to defend, defensively wrestle off the cage is going to a exhaust you because he's he's a wrestler. He's able to handle that grind, and b just set you up to get countered at one point or another, get chipped up because you're fighting so hard to get takedowns, and he's going to be beating you up on, on the entry and maybe beating you up on the exit. Um, but as I said, the smart cage works if Burns wants to pressure. I just don't know if Burns is defensively sound enough to pressure because if you just run in with pressure and you get and you're coming straight in at Woodley he lands an uppercut he lands a right hand he lands a leg kick you're done you're you're he's either going to knock your feet out from underneath you stop your he stops your progress and if you're not a slick, slick defensive fighter he can put combination on you he probably won't but he can land one or two big shots that's my issue the smaller cage is going to require you to take some kind of punishment or it's going to require you to have a certain level of skill to get inside of him Faking the jab, high jab, low jab, low jab, high jab, coming in behind the jab, using feints to work in. I'm not saying Burns has never used that stuff, but I haven't seen him do it enough against guys who are comparable athletes to him. Usually when he's doing it, he's doing it against guys who can't match up with him athletically. Woodley, at least in spots, can match up with him athletically. So the question is, is Burns disciplined enough to get to the spots he needs to to try to test Woodley's cardio and his physicality? I, I don't know. I haven't seen him against a guy who's, who's capable of shutting his lights off. He's always been the better athlete, and he's always probably been the better all-around grappler. In this case, he's a better grappler on the ground, but he's not better at getting the fight to where he wants it to be. Woodley still determines that. Yeah, and you mentioned we haven't seen Gilbert Burns as a um, 
as, uh, or up against someone who has like powerful striking. I mean, you look back over his record, probably the best striker he's faced was Dan Hooker, and he got him out of there in less than a round. So you wonder if that type of susceptibility to big strikes is still prevalent and how he will deal with that. Because we know Woodley is one of the hardest hitters at welterweight. He may not throw a lot, and I know that gets on people's nerves, but when he touches you, he can definitely put your um, put your lights out. Well, the thing about Willie is he's not he's not a good striker. He's a smart one. He's figured out if I back my way to the fence. Most MMA guys don't. I mean, Rory Mark Rory McDonald showed how to beat him. You pressure him, come behind a jab, kick to the body, kick to the leg, paint with the jab, push him back, and have something in his face so he has to react. He'll show his hand, then you can get to the spot you want to, or you can keep him in range and pick him apart. Rory McDonald showed that what five, six, seven years ago. And nobody had even come close to repeating it except Usman. And Usman had, had the wrestler's advantage where he knew that once he got in, he could take Willie down left and right. Rory McDonald wasn't anybody's wrestler. He wasn't even a high-level striker. He just gave him something to, he gave him something to read. And then once Willie showed his hand, he just chopped him up. And then Willie got so hesitant from being punished, Willie didn't want to open up anymore. The blueprint's been there for years. But a lot of these guys, you can't just pick up those skills or pick up that discipline in a fight or two. It's got to be something you've been slowly working on throughout the length of your career, your time on a recent run. Burns hasn't had to work on that. He hasn't had to stay committed to defense. He hasn't had to stay committed to footwork. Woodley's not a great technical striker, neither is Dan Hooker, but he's a much he's a much harder hitter than Dan Hooker, and he has the wrestling as an advantage. He's a much harder kicker. So Burns needs to pressure him. I don't know that Burns can outbox him, especially in a small cage. He's going to have to pressure him a little bit, but every time he pressures, he's walking right into the line of fire. So it's a matter of, has he been working on his skills enough to get into those positions without paying a price? I mean, it's easy to wear Tyron Woodley down. You just have to get to the spot safely. Does Burn, has Burns been training to get to those spots safely? I don't know. From what his, if I look at his last couple of fights, I don't think he has been. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, he's kind of been waiting in there. And I mean, even, even Damian Maya landed some um, decent shots, which was um, something. So... I, I, you have to be concerned that if Woodley touches you in the same way, that it may not end as well for you. I have two other questions in reference to this fight. First one in, in reference to Burns. Looking at the welterweight division, Burns is sitting in at number six right now. How much of a threat is he to that uh, top, to the top five fighters in the in the division? And can we live in a world? Do we live in a world where we ever see Gilbert Burns challenging for 175? 170 pound title. Man, I don't know about that. I just haven't seen Burns against anybody who's capable of exploiting the mistakes he made. When he fought Maya, it's a guy who's older, less durable, less athletic. I mean, the, the entirety of his wins have been the guys he's been able to out athlete and basically bully. And the guys he's lost to, usually it's been a result of guys who've been able to hang in long enough that they can expose his cardio. He's been a guy who's been able to set a high pace but hasn't always been able to maintain that pace. When he hasn't been able to overwhelm somebody, guys have come back and walked him down and stopped them. And so I, I haven't seen him against a level of competition that, that tells me that he's addressed the issues he had. Beating Gunnar Nelson, Gunnar Nelson has so many holes in his striking and is a guy who's going to willfully engage in, into the fight, the kind of fight that um, that Burns wants. I can't be impressed by that. O, OAM, Olivier Aubin Mercer, 
He's not a good striker. He's he's fairly athletic, but he's not really explosive, not really a hard hitter. He's more of a grappler wrestler who kind of strikes. He's going to give Burns a fight he wants. You know, I mean, the Jason Sago, I mean, these are the guys he's beating. The guys he's lost to, Magomedov, um, Preziers, Dan Hooker are guys who are a little bit closer to his athleticism level, guys who can punish you on the feet, and guys who have enough physicality that they can kind of control where the fight goes. You know, they are, they're not just going to be physically overwhelmed by him. When he hasn't physically overwhelmed guys, I haven't seen him win. So, and there's a lot of guys at the welterweight levels who he can't, he can't physically overwhelm Leon Edwards. I don't know that he can physically overwhelm Tyrone Woodley. I'm not sure he can physically overwhelm Jorge Masvidal, much less Usman or Colby Covington. And if he doesn't have that ace in his hole, I don't know what he does. So my other question, and this is this is about Woodley and not specifically about this fight per se. Tyron Woodley is on the Titan Games. The Titan Games is the Rocks, basically his version of American Gladiators. I didn't know he was on that show until I happened to catch the promo for their, their season debut, which was this past Monday. Tyron Woodley is one of the guys who's on the show's him, and I think a woman who was an MMA fighter as well, too. Um, I can't, her name escapes me. I have not seen this mentioned anywhere across UFC uh, PR or social media in any way, shape, or form. My first question to you, Sean, is have you, and when I think of, you know, I thought of Paige Van Zandt when she was on Dancing with the Stars. I believe Randy Gautor was on Dancing with the Stars as well. Um, anytime anyone else is on another platform, they give them promotion they, they highlight they hype it up try to get their their fan base into watching that i have not seen any mention of this for tyron Woodley in any way shape or form talk to me about that because that stands out to me and it stands out to me in a very negative fashion as well too just because it, again we've talked about Woodley taking the steps that he's taking to try to make himself into a bigger draw for the organization without any support from them this is a huge huge mistake that and we're not, I'm not going to say a huge mistake, but this is a mistake on this part, on their part, because, I mean, it's it's a show that clearly is going to draw attention because The Rock is on it. He's one of the biggest stars in the world today. But they have a former champion, one of their most more marketable individuals on the show, or someone who should be considered marketable to various demographics, and they just leave him out of the conversation. Shawan, talk to me about that. Uh, I think part of it, the UFC has mishandled Tyron Woodley. I'm not going to say they haven't. I've, I've agreed with the fact that they have. I feel, I feel they could have done more for him. I feel they could have done more for him. I feel he could have done more for himself instead of complaining, just fall in line, carry the toe the company line, and get more of a push behind him. If he's really invested in becoming a star, really invested in becoming, kind of overcoming the sport and the stigma with it, then you don't get that by pushing back against the organization. The only guy who ever was successful doing that was Tito Ortiz, but Tito had been the UFC's golden boy for years before he started pushing back. So he already had a fan base, a huge fan base backing him up in this battle against Dana White in the UFC. He already had that. Chael Sonnen already has that. But most guys who push back against the UFC don't see the return in their wallets as far as fan base and as far as a push. Even guys who kiss the UFC's butt don't always get that, that response. But the UFC could have done him favors by pushing him more, by talking about his genius, by talking about his level of craft, by talking about the things that make him interesting. 
But I'm going to once again state the fact that Tyron Woodley has been involved in, in two of the most boring fights in the history of the UFC. I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm not saying it's all on him. He won them. That's great. But it's hard to develop fan bases when you're not lighting the world on fire. And as witty and clever as Tyron Woodley may be in business and in dealing with um, management and dealing with fighting, he's not nearly, he doesn't come across that way on, on social media. He doesn't come across that way. I don't see, I don't hear interviews and man, man, Woodley really got him with that one. Or Woodley's really, Woodley's really charming or he's really clever or he's really charismatic. I don't get any of that from him. So if you're not super funny, super charismatic, or super interesting, and Willie hasn't given enough of himself to be any of those things, then you have to be super exciting in fights. And he has not been particularly exciting in the fights he's been in. He just hasn't been. It, he, he just hasn't been. You've got to sell him on one end or the other. You've got to sell him with the sizzle or the steak. He really hasn't sold him consistently on either. And when you're a guy who people don't like, it's even, and whether, and I understand the racial component of it, I get it, dude. There's a reason why certain people don't like him. There's a reason why people don't, don't lean in his, lean to his side. But there's other fighters in the UFC who are also African American, who a lot of people don't like for that reason, who still have big fan bases, who have somehow managed to create fan bases and momentum and interest in themselves. Derek Lewis has done it. Is the uh, Adesanya has done it. You know, other people have gotten it done. And I know that's just two. I'm not trying to say there's a ton, but other people have gotten that done. And he, for all the for all the opportunities he's had, headlining cards, being on Conor McGregor and big name cards, he hasn't found a way to either generate interest in the mainstream or even generate interest in his own social circle as far as African Americans. And he can't blame that on the UFC. You're a black you're you're a black athlete who's a world champion. You can find a way to resonate with your people. You haven't. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's all his fault, but if I'm going to give if I'm going to I can't put all the blame on the UFC either. Sure, they could have done more for him. Sure, they could have given him more opportunities. But the question is, is he really star material? Is there really is he really a game changer as far as being that kind of person in the sport and outside the sport? I don't know. To me, it seems like stars are going to be stars regardless. They didn't push Floyd Mayweather. He figured it out. He just became a star. They didn't push him. He figured it out. He, he just figured it out. Conor McGregor, for all the push they've given him, he came over with his fan base. He had people who were already on the Conor McGregor train. He already had them sold. Tyrone Willie's never had that. He, he just never has. I don't know any time when anybody was thinking, that I have to see that Tyrone Willie fight. I've never heard somebody say that sentence. So let me ask a question. Let's say he goes out there Saturday and blows the doors off of Gilbert Burns. Like, basically... Um, basically does what he did to Robert uh, Robbie Lawler. Does that help? Do you think that we'll hear about him being on Titan Games after that? Does that help that situation at all? Um, It wouldn't hurt. Getting a big time win, I mean, Burns isn't a big name. That's why Willie didn't want to take the fight in the first place. Burns isn't a big name. He's a dangerous guy. On paper, he's not really dangerous, but given the fact he's on momentum, he's still fairly young. He's on the way up. He seems to have figured it out. He's a dangerous guy with high risk, low reward. That's why Willie didn't want this fight. Fighting Covington, high risk, high reward. Usman again, high risk, high reward. Masvidal, high risk, high reward. Even McGregor, high risk, high reward. Fighting Burns, he blows him out. The, the best thing he can do is blow him out. If it's a tough fight, it's going to make people think that Woodley's on the decline. If he loses, it's catastrophic. It's, he really needs to just basically ice this guy. He needs to walk through this guy. 
to show that he's still one of the elite guys and to generate any sort of interest. Um, he's fully capable of doing that. I'm just not sure that he, he's, he's going to do it. I, I don't know what to expect from Tyron Woodley like this. I, I really don't. I, I'm really interested to see what he brings. To I know what he's brought, but I, he's been out so long. He's been so inactive. And um, I'm very concerned about what he's going to bring to the table in this fight. He's got a lot of pressure on him. He's talked about the money issues. He's talked about the disrespect from the UFC. He's watched everybody kind of eclipse him as far as fan bases and activity and respect. There's a lot riding on this fight. He really can't afford to lose it. A loss here is, is not the end of his career, but given how he fights and with the, the style he has, it, it, it's close to it if he loses this, especially if he loses it by knockout. Good thoughts there, sir. I love the way you kind of broke that down. Let's talk about some of the other fights on this card because they're I'm not gonna say there isn't a lot to look at on this card, but there there is there's some stuff you gotta dig through. So I wanted to look at this, not the co-main event, but also on the main card. This fight between Roosevelt Roberts and Brock Weaver. So Weaver, I recognize from the Dana White Contender Series. I um, actually was working his fight and scored it for, scored it that night, and he's won once since then, but it was by illegal knee. So now he's coming back in, fighting nine and one Roberts, who I do not know anything about. Uh, he has fought three, four, five. He's fought four times in the UFC, going three and one. He fought once on Dana White Contender Contender Series back in 2018. He's also fought on Bellator as well. Break down this um this fight here because these are two guys I don't know too much about, but they seem to be two interesting prospects making a run. Um, the main thing I like about Robert is just he seems to have had he's gone long road, which would say that he I don't know that he's faced a certain level caliber of opponent or caliber of athlete, but it does show that he's kind of take taken all the steps into to getting to this point. And I think that matters. A lot of guys who go into being a white contender series often skip steps in that, oh, I've been fighting at this regional level. I won against another regional fighter. Now they're throwing me into the deep end of the pool, um, which seems to be what's happening with Weaver. Uh, I, I, I'm going to say I favor Roberts just because he's, he's faced legitimate. He's fought often, whether he's been in the Bellator, contenders, king of the cage. He's stayed fairly active in the in pretty much a two-year span he's he's fought about 10 fights that's a pretty good clip that's a pretty good clip of that's a pretty good clip of activity and he's fought and essentially he's fought an ascending level of opponent uh fighting vince vince pichel who's not a great fighter but he's definitely a guy who can gauge where you're at and and probably he's right on the fringe of a top 15 guy but more of closer to the gatekeeper i think given his age and his wear and tear on him he lost that fight, but once again, it was a fight against a seasoned opponent, an experienced opponent who'd been in the UFC for three, four, five years, who'd fought a variety of opponents, a variety of styles, a variety of um, athletes. I mean, he's fighting, he fought a guy who's been in the UFC for like seven years. I don't know that Brock Weaver's had that sort of experience or been put in a position where he's really had to push, where he hasn't been able to kind of dictate, where he hasn't been able to to kind of have his way in fights. Not saying there's not a back and forth, but even when there's a back and forth, I feel like Weaver's essentially been able to kind of dictate how the terms of engagement. So I don't know what happens if the fight gets tough. And I know everybody says that in fighters and, and that we, 
that's overplayed a little bit, but there, there's a certain thing to be said about experience. You know, there's a guy who could be, as a grappler, you know, there's a guy who could be technically better than you, but if he's never really been pushed, even if he's technically better than you, all you got to do is make it tough for him. You don't know how he's going to respond. He's never had it tough. All you can do is put him in a, you put him in a position he's never been in once, but does he panic? Is he calm? Does he, does he, even though he knows the moves, does he, does he go to the right moves? Or does the fact that he's been in this foreign situation all of a sudden make him fall apart? And I think that's the, that, that's the advantage Roberts has over him. Roberts is a little bit more established in the UFC. He's a little bit more established in having to be in, in tough fights. He's a little bit more established in facing opponents where he's not a clear physical or technical advantage where he's had to work for the fight, work for those wins. I'm not sure that Weaver's had a similar experience. And I don't know what happens if he comes in and he can't get that takedown. Or he hits that guy with a combination that guy comes right back. Or maybe he can't get to the guy the way he wants to. Or maybe he can't get the takedown as cleanly as he wants to. Or maybe he t- takes the guy down the guy gets right back up. Those are the kind of questions that you have to wonder when you have inexperienced guys who have potential and have athleticism and have some skill but don't have a lot of in-depth, I've-been-through-tough-fights seasoning type, type of experience. So... That's some good breakdowns on, on some younger guys there. And I want to talk about the two women's fights on this card. I think they're both very important. You have Hannah Seifers fighting Mackenzie Dern and Caitlin Trukagian going from one sister to the next as she fights Antonia Shevchenko. Let's talk about that Trukagian Shevchenko fight first. I think this fight well, will look much different. Right, right. I think this fight will look much different than the Valentina fight will because I, Shevchenko, Antonia doesn't have the same skill set as her sister. What are, your, what are your thoughts about this women's fight? Then we're going to talk about the Hannah Seifers and, and McKenzie during them. Well, the first fight, the uh, Seifers, uh, Chukagan fight. No, 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 Shevchenko. no. Chukagan no. oh. is fighting Shevchenko. Seifers is sorry, fighting Dern. Yeah. Um, the thing about Chukagan and uh, Shevchenko is Antonina is like a middle class version of Valentina, like the great value version. I don't know, the H-E-B brand, I don't, I don't know what y'all call it in, in different parts of the area, but she's the lesser version. I don't think this is the right weight class for her, personally. Um, I think she's had issues cutting weight, which also affects whatever athleticism she has. She's not the athlete that Valentina is. She's not, she doesn't seem to have the mean streak that Valentina does, and she doesn't seem to have the physicality that Valentina ha- does. And I'm not sure if that's a, la- a lacking in her character or in her physical attributes, or if that's just a matter of the weight cut, but I could never see Valentina Shevchenko getting bullied by Roxanne Modafari. That's never going to happen. I don't care under what circumstance that fight happens. You will never see, and I like Roxanne Modafari, you will never see Roxanne Modafari bully Valentina Shevchenko. You saw her bully Antonina. Antonina is a better striker, better distance manager, uh, better defensive striker. She couldn't keep, she couldn't keep Modafari off her. And in the spots when, when Montefiore got to clinches and tie-ups, she was wearing Antonina down. Antonina couldn't get her off her. She couldn't separate. She couldn't punish her in those clinches. She couldn't really take her down and, and work her over, even though you would think that she'd have physical advantages over her. So when I see the Chukagan fight, the biggest fight issue Chukagan had with Valentina is, one, Valentina's a better striker. Antonina's a better striker. But Valentina has a mean streak, and Valentina has that extra athleticism that neutralizes Chukagan's tendency to throw volume and to use a lot of movement. That didn't work because every time she threw something, she was punished. Every time she thought about throwing something, she was punished. And every, every time she tried to extend or close the range, she got roughed up or she got taken down. She had no air, no safety zone. If she can get on her feet and on her toes 
and start throwing volume, I don't know that Antina has the defensive awareness to get away from it. And I'm not sure that she has the power of physicality to smother it and punish Chukagan for those mistakes. I think Chukagan might be the more aggressive fighter. Chukagan's probably the better grappler. And Chukagan's used to fighting Bantamweight. So Chukagan's going to have the physicality necessary to tie up with Antonina and stay one round, two round, three rounds. Because Antonina doesn't have that, 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 uh, that cheat code, that power, that explosiveness in, in what she does, that savagery in what she does. And that's going to be a separator to me. I think, I think Chukagan's volume, her mobility, and probably some, to a degree her, her grappling, wrestling, is going to come in and be a factor. She should win a decision. If she loses it to Antonina, that's a bad loss. Because this is a fight that's basically going to keep her in talks as far as being a title contender in case Valentina moves back up to challenge Nunes at some point or another or moves up to get a Bantamweight title. She can't afford to lose this fight to a person who hasn't looked incredible in her run in the UFC and definitely looked exposed and vulnerable against Roxy Modafari, who not only is on the back half of her career but still isn't a, a serviceable striker and is less than a serviceable athlete. As good as she's looked recently, those facts don't change. So I would say Chukagan has the, has the uh, better corner, has the better athleticism, and should be able to have the better work rate and, and physicality, and she should win this. Um, but she, Caitlin's, Caitlin's disappointed me before. So, um, but I, I'm going to say Chukagan wins this just off her volume, her activity and her volume should be enough to win it. I actually agree with that. I think she's going to not be as hesitant as she was when she was facing Valentina. Uh, let's talk about Hannah Seifers and Mackenzie Dern because, you know, Mackenzie Dern is coming back from pregnancy. Hannah Seifers is, let's see how, I don't think she's fought in a little while as well. Seifers last contest was, no, she fought in January Angela, this year. Angela Hill? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Angela Hill stopped her. Um, so she's actually been pretty active. She fought twice in 2019, two, three times in 2018. Yeah, th- four in 2017. So yeah, she's been, been pretty active over the last few years. Um, being stopped by Angela Hill and Macy Barber in, in the second round, but she's won decisions in between those. So she's coming off of that, and she's facing Dern, who came, who's coming off of her first career loss. She lost to Amanda Rebus by um, decision. What do you think about this fight here? Uh, what do you expect from Mackenzie Dern coming back uh, to the cage, and do you think that Seifers will be able to implement that same type of game as Reba's did to get the win here. I don't think she will because she doesn't have the grappling that Reba's does, but we know the blueprint for defeating Mackenzie Durr, but we just haven't seen it um, effectively applied fully except through Reba's. Um, yeah, the, the, this is, this in theory is supposed to be um, a, a highlight or showcase fight for Dern. Seifers is undersized. See, she's physical. She's tough. She's a punishing fighter. She's not a great grappler. She's not a great wrestler. She's a tough striker. She's not necessarily a good one. And Dern should have advantages in size. She should have advantages in athleticism. She should be the harder-hitting fighter. She should be the better wrestler and the better grappler. This fight is being made for Dern to look good in. And they're putting her up against a tough girl because it's going to, in theory, it should force Dern to have to work through a couple of rough spots because Cyphers will continue to fight. You can't just throw her down and she's going to give up the arm. You just can't land some ground and pound. She's going to quit. You can't just hit her with one shot and she's going to fold. She's going to fight back. 
So she's she's tough enough and durable enough to fire back and to fight out of bad positions enough that it's gonna that it legitimizes the fight, even though the skill, the gap in skill, just in the wrestling and the grappling alone is tremendous. The striking is fairly even, to be quite honest. Neither one of them is great defensively, neither one of them is great offensively, but one of them is a top-tier athlete and one of them is not. Um, if she knocks her out, it looks good because Seifers is the girl who's known for taking huge amounts of punishment. So if you can knock her out quick, that looks good. If you can break her down over three, that looks good because Seifers is the girl who doesn't quit. And if you can just finish her, not submit her, take her down and finish her quickly, that looks good as well because it shows what kind of class and how dangerous you are as a wrestler and a grappler. But this fight is being made to make Dern look good. The question is, is Dern going to be in shape? Is Dern 100% focused? Has Dern been working on her craft? Or is she still trying to get by on her athleticism and her size? Because that's all that's really won her last her fight. She comes out there throwing bombs. She's too fast. She's too big. She hits too hard for these girls. These girls get physically overwhelmed. She gets them down and either wins decisions through athleticism or sometimes she submits them or knocks them out. It's not, it's not so much about skill as it's so much as her physical tools expose the lack of skill for her opponents. And in this case, against Hannah Cyphers, you're facing a limited defensive fighter who's undersized, doesn't hit very hard, but is very tough and is willing to exchange. That's the perfect fight she needs. The qu- only question is, is she can be prepared enough to take advantage of Cyphers and expose her in the spot she needs to be exposed in? If she's not in shape, it's going to be real tough. She could lose it because mentally she has spots where she looks like she looks for ways out. So, but this is supposed to be a fight she's supposed to win and win fairly impressively. Uh, it's just a matter of how well she's prepared and if she's pre- and if she's prepared to put herself in the position to succeed or she's going to be overconfident and get put in a bad spot and then kind of crumble mentally. So who do you see? I don't think, I, think, I don't know if you said it, but who do you see coming out of that fight on top, Seifers or uh, Dern? It'd have to be Dern. I mean, if Seifers win, it'd be the best win of her career. But she'd have to show something I haven't seen from her. And um, she hasn't been great against girls who are better than her athletically. Angela Hill, better than her athletically. Uh, I forgot the karate girl. Macy Barber, uh, once again, another fairly limited fighter, but who just was able to physically overwhelm her. Laura Dern is, I mean, excuse me, Laura Dern. Mackenzie Dern is another, is a limited fighter with great physical tools. I think her physical tools carry the day and she wins, she wins the fight. Okay, great thoughts there, sir. Um, I want to talk about our second topic today, and this is around the conversation about the MMA GOAT. And for those who don't know, GOAT stands for greatest of all time. And we're not talking specifically about who fills that spot. We have a, I have a question that we're going to ask in reference to that. It'll be the last question. But I want to talk about how Connor kind of outlay, uh, outlined his path to being considered the greatest of all time and why other fighters aren't. Um, I don't want to harp on what he really said there, but what do you think, Schwan, about the way he broke every other fighter down as a reasons why they should be in consideration and why they are not? Do you think that he got that part right? Um, you know, first of all, I heard about the article. I have not had a chance to really go to go over it because um, I thought it was just Connor kind of spouting his, his usual nonsense. So I, I really haven't even looked at the article. I'm actually looking at it right now because I was like, I figured he was just doing his typical, I'm Connor McGregor, I'm better than everybody, nobody can match my speed, my pedigree. But hmm. are you done? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Go. You can go ahead and talk oh, some because okay. I'm, I'm literally ch- checking out now. Go ahead. So I was wondering, as you look through that, I think it, I actually think he did a good job of dissecting what made people, what what some people were considered, uh, why some people were considered champions, and or why some people should be considered and why others should not. Some of it was, uh, I, the whole conversation is very subjective. From a Connor's angle, I see I consider him among the greatest of all time because he continues to raise the bar every time he steps in, into the cage and not every time, excuse me. When he does ascertain new goals, he finds a way to meet them and he continues to raise the bar. But my question is, what makes a fighter a candidate for the greatest of all time? For me, like when I look at this conversation, I think you have to look at a couple of different things. A you have to look at their win-loss record. And not necessarily just their win-loss record, because we know MMA records are different than boxing. You can't you can't compare the two together and say, oh, if Floyd Mayweather is 50 and 0, so why should this fighter over here who's 20 and 10 be considered the greatest? It doesn't work like that because MMA records are, are different. They fight the toughest individuals they have that are in front of them more often than not. But you have to look at an individual's win-loss record. You have to look at whether or not they obtain um, accolades such as championships. Um, championships across various weight classes also matter. That's also very important. To me, I also think it's very important to defend that title. And that's my always been my biggest um, detraction from Conor McGregor is that he's never defended a belt against a viable contender at any point in time. Um, and that's also why I look at people like Demetrius Johnson as as on my list of greatest of, of, of all time um, fighters, because not only did he defend the belt consistently, but he was out there finishing guys consistently. People often try to immediately go to the fact that, oh, well, DJ didn't finish anybody. Actually, in his 12 title defenses, he finished seven of those guys. So that's completely thrown out of, out of the window. Um, yes, he did lose to Henry Cejudo um, by a split decision, but he also stopped. Henry Cejudo, when they first when when they first fall, he has those those losses or that loss to Dominic Cruz over five rounds, um, fighting in a in a weight class that him and he was too small for. So I think that title defense question or that title defense piece pays um, very it, it pays a lot of or it, it has a lot of weight for me because that's why I look at guys like John Jones, Demetrius Johnson, um, GSP. You know, they are within that space because they not only won titles, but they continually defended them against the top people that were put up in front of them. So for you, Schwann, what makes a fighter uh, a candidate for the greatest of all time? Well, I think it's it's kind of a lot of stuff you said. It's wins. It's, it's who you fought. It's your record against those guys. And if we're talking about for the fans, it's the impact. It, I guess you could say for fans or fight fans, it's, it's the impact you had on the actual game. Did you dominate it or did you change the game? It's the same thing in any sport. Did you change the position or did you just, were you so good at it, you dominated it or did you change the position? Who did you have your, what kind of wins did you have and who did you have these wins against? Um, the thing that gives Conor McGregor such an advantage is, and nobody, nobody wants to hear this, but the fact of the matter is beating Jose Alta, who hadn't been beaten who's only been beaten by what Volkanovski and Max Holloway since who went on like what another two year run without losing and who's beating top contenders. 
and who had only lost once before, and that was like eight years before, and had been the dominant, most dominant WEC champion, most dominant UFC featherweight champion. That guy, you beat that guy in eight seconds. You knocked him out with basically the first shot you win. That fight alone, that's like beating Roy Jones. Just that fight alone is better than 90% of most fighters' career. Most fighters have never beaten a guy at his peak. Jose Aldo was still at his peak. How do I know? For the next two or three years, he was kicking the crap out of everybody. You know, um, so you beat a guy like that. You beat a guy like Eddie Alvarez, who's another all-time great, and you beat him for the lightweight champ, lightweight championship, and your and your first, your really your first foray to that weight class. You know, those two wins back to back really kind of separate him from other people because it's two Hall of Fame guys, guys who won titles in multiple organizations, guys who essentially dominated one, if not two, dominated a weight class. If in the case of Eddie Alvarez, might have dominated two, two weight classes. And he de- defeated them, and he made it look easy. And these are guys who, after they lost to Conor McGregor, went on to beat other top contenders. Eddie Alvarez knocking out Jose Aldo, I mean, excuse me, Justin Gaethje, um, and then winning in one. You got Aldo beating Frankie Edgar, beating Jeremy Stevens. Who else did he beat? I can't even remember. He beat, like, two other guys on the way to, before he lost to Holloway and lost to Volkanovski. Like, you have guys who've gone on to continue their dominance even after they've lost to him, which just makes his win look that much better on top of that even though it was early in his career he still beat max holloway who at worst is the second best featherweight of all time a guy who's defended his title multiple times you can say he got him when he was young conor mcgregor was young too so he beat the two best featherweights of all time and one of the best lightweights in the history of mixed martial arts he stopped he stopped two of them and and surprisingly he took down and out grappled max holloway we can say it was when he was young that's all great. That's all fine. John Jones was young, and guys couldn't beat him. So if we're going to use the young, we can't use it against him. We can't give one guy props for being young and take it away from another guy when he's young. You did what you did. You won what you won. You lost what you lost. He beat the two best featherweights of all time, and he beat one of the top, what, 10, top 15 lightweights in the history of mixed martial art. That's a really hard. That's a really high resume, and that's not counting the other ranked guys that he's beaten in his weight class. Chad Mendes was the number one guy behind the champion. He stopped him. You know, Dennis Seaver might have been faded, but Dennis Seaver was still a top 10 fighter at the time. He beat Dustin Poirier, who's, ch- who's challenged for belts at lightweight, who's been a top five fighter at lightweight and featherweight, and he's challenged for belts. I think he challenged, no, he didn't challenge for a belt at, at featherweight. Challenged for a belt at lightweight. He beat that guy. I mean, you put those five fights together, you put those win, you put those win records together, and it's hard, it's hard to argue how good a fighter he is. Destin Poirier, interim champion, lightweight. Max Holloway, defending featherweight champion. Aldo, longest reigning defending light featherweight champion from two organizations. I mean, look at that right there. Uh, Eddie Alvarez, Bellet, former Bellator champ, former UFC champion, who lost the belt to Connor. Chad Mendez, top contender in WEC, longtime top three fighter in the weight class in WEC and UFC. Look at these wins. Look at these guys' win records. He beat those guys, and he beat them all handily. Most guys' resume isn't that strong. John Jones's resume isn't that strong. He's got two elite guys on there, and one of them's not really even elite. Demetrius Johnson, for all that he's done, he doesn't have a whole lot of elite fighters on his resume either. Not wins. He not, not wins, he doesn't, even though I think he's a better all-around fighter. So I think by Connor's measure... There's a lot of guys who can't be in the conversation with them just off the strength of the schedule of the guys they beat. He's beating five guys so who might said, go down. Go ahead. go ahead. You said Demetrius Johnson doesn't have a lot of quality wins. 
on his no, no, he's got quality wins. He's got quality wins, but Connor's got wins over at least at least three all time grades. Guys, guys are in the top ten all time grades. I would, I, I agree with that. When you compare their records together, Connor has more wins over bigger names. Um, you know, Alvarez, like you said. Uh, well, let me uh, let me pull that up real quick and look at it. And he's not just but, hey, he's a good fighter. He's a good fighter. What I was gonna say, like you, I don't want to de- devalue Demetrius Johnson's win. Like he has two over Joseph Benavidez, who was used as an argument to beef up Dominic Cruz. He has mm-hmm. two. So Mighty Mouse has two wins over him. Mm-hmm. He has a yep. win over Ian McCall. Ian McCall was considered the greatest flyweight outside of the UFC before the flyweight division got added. So he has a he win was, over him. I, he was, but I never believe that. I never believe huh? that. <laughs> I said he was considered that. I never agree with that. I get it, but I never agreed with that. I, I will go with that too as well. And he also stopped Henry Cejudo. He stopped him. Um, from, from Aldo's, not Aldo, excuse me, from McGregor's standpoint, yeah, he has wins over Max Holloway, Dustin Poirier, Jose Aldo, um, and and the Eddie the Alvarez fight. Those are probably his four most valuable wins. You could you could put those above DJ's for sure, but I think DJ has some very 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 solid wins that people forget about more often than not. Oh, he's got a lot of he's got a lot. I think he's a better all round fighter as far as skills. I think he's defended his belt. He's probably been more consistent and more active. But I, I'm just talking about if you look at the top of their resumes, I mean, Connor's got, if you if you count the interim championship, he's got two organization champion, he's got a two organization champion, and he's got an interim lightweight champion, and he and he knocked them all out in the first round. He knocked wait, no, he knocked out of Rose in the second round. He knocked two, he thought he knocked an all around great title champion. Huh? He's never been the interim champion. No, I said oh, on his resume. Title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resume, so when he, when he, when he Poirier was the interim lightweight champion. He knocked him out of round. He knocked he knocked Alvarez. He knocked Aldo out of round. He knocked Alvarez out on two. I think he stopped Mendez in two, and then he beat Max Holloway. So he's got guys who are who were champions and dominant champions that he's beat. And I'm not I'm not saying that makes him the best, but when he explains it that way, there's a certain amount of logic. And I'm like, you just take the Jose Aldo win. You take Jose Aldo. You take Max Holloway. You take Eddie Alvarez. Those are three all-time great fighters, and he beat every single one of them handily. That's hard to overcome. That's very true. I'll agree with you on, on, on that point. The last question in reference I want to ask is, I saw this, and I thought that this was very interesting. Is MMA too young to have a greatest of all time right now? And I think this came up, I believe I saw it on Twitter, and I think this came up because a lot of people are still talking about the last dance. Um, with Michael Jordan and how much history the NBA has. And there's so many different ways you can look at who is the NBA's greatest basketball, who's the greatest basketball player of, of all time. There's so many different ways you can look at that conversation and come up with an answer that is either Michael Jordan or just isn't um, Jordan. There's so many different ways you can look at that. But around MMA, you know, MMA is probably about what, 20, not even 20 years, maybe like 25 years old, maybe a little bit older than that. 30, let's just say 30 years old to be uh, fair. Is MMA too young to have a greatest of, of, of all time? Uh, I don't I don't think so. I mean, to be honest, you have to start from somewhere. You you can't you can't have a greatest of all time until you actually legitimately start from someplace. 
So you had to start from somewhere. And in the, in the last 20 years, 25 years, you can, you, you can only go by what you've shown. And there have been guys who've been, who've been dominant in that 25 years. And, and you forget how many, I mean, that's not just UFC. If you, if you were just saying UFC, I might understand it. But when you're looking overall, the whole big picture, as far as, um, as far as MMA, then yeah, I, I would give it, I would give it a little bit more. Yeah. I give it a little bit more credence because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about MMA as a whole. So 25 years is a lot because that covers a lot of bases as far as mixed martial arts. So hmm, that's interesting because you don't think like, I thought that this was a very, it was a good question because yes, MMA hasn't been around as, as much or as long as other, uh, other sports, but I think it's had different eras in a way that can help this conversation. And I think that it kind of bridges or, or creates space for this conversation. When a lot of, oftentimes we talk about the greatest of all times, there's so many different eras that people just don't, consider like fewer and fewer people are mentioning Fedor now as we talk about the greatest of all time like his name is getting mentioned less and less uh, just because he wasn't in the purview of the North American fan at any point in time in his career when he did come over it was already too late his best days were behind him you don't hear anybody talking about Frank Shamrock Frank Shamrock was a fantastic mixed martial artist who was um, doing it at a time when, again, a lot of eyes weren't on the sport. He, you know, he's the one who passed it on to Tito Ortiz, and he didn't really pass it on to Tito. He beat Tito and then said, here, you can take my spot. So I think it's we're at a point where we have enough room to have a greatest of all time conversation around MMA just because there's been so many different generations and so many different eras of, of the fight game that we are um, open to that now. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. I mean, it's... it's- it's it at this stage of MMA is in it's changing pretty fast because of the the, st- the point it's happening in. We're happening in, as they have the cutting edge technology training, psycho- psychological training, technical training, health training. That's where we're at right now. So there's going to be huge jumps forward in the area of mixed martial arts. So you're gonna the fighters from ten years ago don't look like the fighters now. The female fighters from ten years ago couldn't. You know they'd have girls who come in at 180 pounds who'd probably get beat up by 120 pound girls but there still has to be a point of reference that you go from to that starts the lays the foundation so if you're one of the guys who laid the foundation at that you have to be considered one of the best because you were you were considered the the uh template from which other guys moved forward even you know got mark coleman brought in a bunch of other wrestlers who are better wrestlers and better all-around fighters but why did they think they could make it because mark coleman when the strikers really, really get into mixed martial arts, when they saw Marie Smith, Marie Smith was like the most decorated, high quality striker to come in and win in the UFC. All these other guys who were anywhere near world ranked in their disciplines couldn't do anything. So when, when people saw Marie Smith do it, I guarantee you, fighters saw that and said, "You know what? I can do this. You know what? I can do this." Same thing with Hoyce Gracie. Hoyce Gracie is always going to be compared to a certain degree, just because he's the guy who started off. Other guys came. Well, I'm a better striker and I can grapple. Or I'm a better kickboxer, and I can grapple, and I'm, I'm a better wrestler than him. You know, they, they set the template, so they set the bar. Now the bar has been raised, and, and their ability to compete is lessened, but those guys get by on the fact that they changed the game. Combat sports are different. Royce Gracie changed the game. Uh, Maury Smith intera- ena- enacted a big change where 
world-class strikers to get it and, and win. Mark Coleman, he's the guy who came up with ground and pound, like officially. He's the one who really got wrestlers into it. He's the one he brought a bunch of wrestlers in. His whole influence is through the sport. Uh, Fedor was the guy who transitioned through ranges. He'd go from wrestling to striking to submissions. He kind of set that meta game up. So those guys get their props based off the fact they changed the game, and they were, Fedor was the first small heavyweight to dominate. So it's things like that. So I think you can have a guy, you can have it, but it's going to change a lot in this in this period of time because there's so many changes going on with the athletes, the rules, and the reach of the sport. As the sport gets further and further, better better athletes, it's going to get further away from who started it. But just because guys don't remember who they are doesn't mean they're not great. A lot of guys don't remember um, um, Ketchel. They don't remember Willie Pep. But people who know the sport know that they're great, and they're always going to be great because everybody's template is based off of those kind of guys. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Great, great uh, conversation there. I want to move over to our listener questions. We have three questions today. And the first one is in reference to Daniel Cormier. So I don't know if you saw his interview with Ariel Hawani from Monday, I believe it was, or Friday, maybe one of the two, where he basically said that he is in support of fighter pay staying confidential. And that's pretty upsetting because the only reason why fire pay is kept confidential is to suppress wages, clearly. Because if, let's say, Amanda Nunez doesn't know what Ronda Rousey made when she was champion, she doesn't know what to ask for as she continues to establish herself as the greatest women's fighter of all time, double champion, et cetera, et cetera. She's not going to know what to kind of push for. If you pay John Jones $3 million, let's say, Let's say he got paid $3 million for his last fight and he's asking for five of the fight, for instance, in Ganu. And if the UFC says, no, we're not paying you that amount. But in reality, they were going to make $20 million or whatever that number is from him taking that fight. You realize that fighters not knowing how much money their peers are getting paid, it limits what they think to ask for in future considerations. I mean, you see this in, in the NFL at all times. People will say, hey, I want to have the biggest contract, and teams may not like to do it, but they figure out ways to give these guys bigger and bigger contracts year after year. The only reason why they can get those contracts is because they know what everyone else is making. Same thing in the NBA. What are your thoughts about Daniel Cormier's comments here of of being in support of keeping fighter pay confidential? My thoughts are the same thoughts I have whenever this comes up. Once guys get their money, they get real tight-lipped about opinions and who's right and who's wrong. Daniel Cormier has already gotten his money, so Daniel Cormier is going to shut his mouth and fall in line like everybody else. Um, just like Donald Cerrone did, just like Jose Aldo did, um, whoever's ever complained, once they get paid, all of a sudden their, their concerns for their fellow fighters and their concerns for everybody else seems to disappear quite quickly. Um, I get why he didn't say it, and to a degree, to an extent, to an extent, I will say I agree. I don't care what Ronda Rousey's get paid. I don't know that I can give Amanda Nunes the same amount of money. So what if she's a champion? I get what they're saying. You're the champion. You deserve this respect. But Ronda Rousey can fight anybody and make the same money she's making to fight Amanda Nunes. She doesn't have to fight anybody with a name. Ronda Rousey comes out right now. Ronda Rousey will outsell Amanda Nunes if she fights. You, you have Felicia Spencer fight Amanda Nunes. Tell me the pay-per-view vibes. Then tell me Ronda Rousey is going to take six months to get in shape, and she's going to fight Felicia Spencer next. Who do you think will get the most pay-per-view buys? 
That's very true. Ronda Rousey is definitely going to get the most buys easily, so, hands down. It, but I guarantee it, 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 you, though. But here's the thing, though. I guarantee you, though, Ronda Rousey should know how much money she made. Like the Amanda Nunez conversation. Okay, of course. She's always going to trump her when it comes to pay-per-view buys. But guess what? Ronda Rousey should know how much money Conor McGregor's making because that's comparable for her where, she's, where she should be able to say, he's making X, I should be making Y. No, I, I, I can agree with that. I can, I can agree with that. All I'm saying is a lot of the fighters who have these complaints, who have these complaints, it's like a lot of fighters, fighters, fighters will lie to you. Tyrone Woodley used to be, an, I, I was on a pay-per-view that sold this many millions. Who else was on that pay-per-view with you, Tyrone? Who else was on you? What, did you really sell $2 million or did somebody else sell $2 million? I'm not bashing you. But I, was, I was on the biggest card. Everybody knows me. No, they don't. You were on a Conor McGregor card. You were on a Ronda Rousey card. You were on a Holly Holm card, even. You weren't on a card where you were a contributing factor into this. Now, do I think they should know so they can kind of generate their money? True, I do. But the fact of the matter is these guys are idiots. These guys will take less money to get the UFC brand, the UFC letters behind their name or in front of their name. We all know this. We know fighters who will take, oh, we'll pay you 12000 to fight on our show. No, I want to fight the best. I'll take 10 and 10 to win on the UFC. What? You're going to take 2000 less? Okay, how about this? We'll pay you 20000 just to show. Show bonus. Nope. I'm going to take 10 and 10 because if I win, then I'll get the other 10, so I'll be there anyway. But you're turning down a guaranteed 20 for a possible 20? Why? Because it's the UFC. It's more eyes on me. People turn down better paychecks. People fight during pandemics. People will do whatever it takes to keep the UFC on their side. So I don't know that they'd be willing to take a tough stand. I think the UFC could still draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, we're paying them $15,000. we are not paying you over nine. Take it or leave it. And if they don't take it, there's somebody else who will come in and gladly take it to be a UFC fighter. It's like they don't have any leverage because they're they, none of them are willing to walk away. So even unless you're willing to walk away, you knowing there's nothing but piss you off because you don't you don't have your management doesn't have the guts to walk away, and most of these fighters don't have the guts to walk away. So what does it matter? I mean, you're you're very true there, sir. They don't have the guts to walk away. Let's move on to the next question and. We have this weekend's card where we have Burns and Woodley in the main event. The next two weekends, we have Felicia Spencer and Amanda Nunez as the main event, and also um, Jessica I and Cynthia Calvillo. People are not happy with these two main events, and it's almost it's comical to me because fight fans wanted fights back so badly. You know, they open the country up. These fighters need to fight. I don't, the UFC shouldn't pay them, you know, if, if they can't do fights, like let them fight. They want to fight, et cetera, et cetera. And now the UFC is putting on fights and they're putting on fights with short notice, trying to throw things together. You see them and trying to announce fights further out to try to give people more notice. But we have a card with two main events that people are not happy about. This is the, this is the normal that we're going to be in for a little while where these fights are kind of booked in, or these cards are kind of mishmash and put together at last minute. What are your thoughts about fan outcry because of these two main events going on? In my opinion, I think you beggars can't be choosers. You wanted fights, you're getting fights, watch the damn fights. If if you if you don't want to watch them, then your whole your almost your whole um, argument for why fights should be going on is null and void. Yeah, the thing about it is with people, we had this discussion, we assume we're like 
the UFC is going to come out gangbusters because they know they're the only ones, so they're going to make a good impression. Instead of the UFC saying, we ain't got no competition, we're just going to give you what you want, we're going to give you what we want, and you're going to like it. And the fact that they have the ESPN money kind of secures them from taking a financial windfall because the UFC's already paid, the ESPN's already paid them a certain amount of money. Anything over is just extra. And they have a lot less, their costs are less because they don't have fans in there. So now they get, you, you bring less money in from a gate, but there's less money you have to spend on extras because guess what? Nobody's there. So they don't really have to give us top-notch cards. We just thought they would to curry our favor and separate themselves from the other sports by giving us, as UFC says, we give you the fight you won. Boxing doesn't, we do. That's never been true. But somehow people start believing that nonsense. So we're basically stuck with whatever they get. And um, as, as I said before, uh, it's the brand that sells. It's not really the fights. People tune in because, A, there's nothing else to watch, and, two, B, it's UFC. These two matchups aren't really better than anything Bellator has to offer. But Bellator would get a 200,000 views, and UFC is still going to break a million because it's just the UFC. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't. I wonder what these what these uh, events are going to rate like. What they're what people are going to watch or how people are going to watch them, um, because the the two showcases we've had, UFC two forty nine supposedly did seven hundred thousand buys. We haven't heard much about the ratings from the other two shows. Well, UFC the UFC they had on ESPN did one point. I think it was 1.18 million viewers, which is pretty strong for them as well, too. So uh, we'll see as these um, shows continue to roll out. Uh, you're hearing more about sports opening back up. That's kind of our next question, actually, because the U.S. Attorney General, I believe, I believe that's who it was, Homeland Security, they passed a resolution that will allow foreign-born players to begin traveling to the United States again, which is going to open up uh, sports for you know all the the leagues. So let's talk about this because now, if foreign-born fighters are able to travel back to the United States to compete, is Fight Island still going to happen? Is that still a thing, or are we just going to ignore that? Or will the UFC or will Dana White try to push forward with it just because another eagle trip? Uh, I have no idea, man. Dana White is... I've given up trying to understand that man, to be quite honest. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I'm kind of I'm kind of confused with this means. I'm kind of confused where, where this is going to go. I, I, I don't know. Are the other... I don't know if all the sports are going to enforce this. It's, I just have more questions. When I read this, I'm like, so athletes are now what are considered essential, essential workers now? So what now? Like, what happens now? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand. Say that part again? Like, I, I don't understand exactly what this means. Like, is everybody getting forced this now? Does it, does it mean there's not going to be any more hiccups? There's not going to be any more problems? Uh, does this mean the other sports are going to start kicking in now? They're going to have competition? Like, I, I don't understand yeah, what this I mean, means. Yeah, that's what it seems like. like um, the NHL announced that they are discussing – yeah, hockey announced that they're discussing basically canceling the season and going right to the playoffs. Well, where they will start to play. I mean, because obviously, if you think of hockey, all of those players, or not all of them, but the vast majority of them are foreign players. So they're going to go straight to the postseason and um, just do like a 24, 2014 postseason. Um, 
basketball is talking about doing all of their games in Orlando and doing something similar, going straight to the playoffs. Um, Major League Baseball is talking about doing some things in Arizona as well. So the other sports leagues are opening up opening up and you also see this within professional wrestling as well too because there's a lot of professional wrestlers that are are you know not necessarily excuse me they're they're foreigners they're not american nationals so they've been off of television for an extended period of time and we're going to start to see some of them slowly start to come back as well too so i think that this is going to have a larger term impact and i don't know if fight island is still going to be a thing because by time they may get it up and running there may not be a need for it. I mean, right now there isn't a need for it. Dana White was saying that he's planning on having fight cards there in June, but there isn't, there isn't any, there may not be a need for it anymore. Like the Jessica I, Cynthia Calvillo fight, that fight doesn't actually have a location yet. So maybe that's the first fight that's, that's there. Maybe we'll see, but that's in two weeks. So we really don't know what this is going 